And the things I'm going to share with you, I wish I would have known many, many years ago. Things that I found helpful and clarifying. You may know uh, this band, um, this band called uh, Beatles, uh, Paul, John, George, Ringo, and Maharishi. Have you heard of that band? Uh, at the height of their fame in the 60s, the Beatles uh, decided to go away, to get away from the craziness, and they went to India. And uh, they were with a few other celebrities who went to an ashram, which is like a retreat center uh, for Hinduism, and the Maharishi was there. And they sat under the teaching of the Maharishi. And John Lennon later uh, said uh, all he did was just give a bunch of gener generalities and stuff that didn't make sense. But uh, while they were there, the Maharishi had to get on a helicopter to go to Delhi. And there was room on the helicopter for one of them. And John Lennon raised his hand and wanted to go real bad. And so he jumped in the helicopter and went to Delhi with the Maharishi. When he got back, his friend Paul McCartney pulled John aside and said, tell me, why were you so excited to get on a helicopter with the Maharishi? And John Lennon gave a great response. He said, I was hoping he might slip me the answer. And of course he didn't, because he didn't have the answer. I'm going to give you the answer today. I'm going to boil down the Christian experience and the Christian life dynamic down to its most basic, fundamental, and I hope that you also, as it's been for me, will find it very, very helpful, very clarifying. What is this business of being a Christian, of following Christ? So, I can't understand anything until I can draw a picture of it. I'm going to skip through all this stuff. This is... I'll have to come back and teach this one. Just for the sake of time. To follow Jesus, I, I would argue, is basically to grow into human wholeness. Wouldn't you agree? And I would, I would define human wholeness uh, in this way. The freedom and the ability to give and receive love. From God, this way. But from each other, this way. To give and receive love. Now, we all need to be more loving, right? Um, but we also need to be able to rest in someone's love for us. It's true for all of us, human wholeness. And uh, there are people who are really loving. You've got them in this room. You know, they walk into a room like this and they can tell immediately who's hurting, who's lonely, who needs a hug, who needs a listening ear, who needs a platter of cookies. They're just good at, at loving. But some of those people, when you try to lift their burden or help them out, it's like they hold a mirror up to reflect it away and say, no, you, you really shouldn't do that, you know, or I'll make it up to you. There are people like that. On the other hand, there are people who will take all the love you can give them. And their lives are so turned inward, however, that they are completely unaware, oblivious to the needs of people around them. You know people like that, too. You might have people in... This room like that, you may be that person. The first kind of person, the loving, caring person, uh, they work hard. They're great to have in your church. They volunteer. They lift heavy loads. They... The second kind of person will wear you out. But both are wounded. And both need the healing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ because human wholeness is not just to be loving, but it's also to be able to rest in someone's love for me. Would you agree? And you look at mental illness, which is just skyrocketing in America today, and the, the irrational, uh, unbelievable incidence of random violence in our nation today somehow is connected 
to this brokenness in the human story today, this inability to give and receive love. You'll see isolation everywhere. It's, it's a problem. So I want to draw a picture. I can't understand anything unless I draw a picture. Are you like that? I just can't understand it. So I wanted you to draw a picture with me. You can do this. You don't have to be an artist. Draw an arc that stems from above clockwise from 12 o'clock to 6 o'clock. And at the top of the arc, is that right? Am I going this right way? Yeah. Right, God. And then the bottom of the arc is me or, or us. Now, that arc represents a lot. It represents all that God is. All that he's done. And all that he's promised. Now, just think about that. That's a lot of content, isn't it? All that God is, all that he's done, all that he's promised. How do we know all that God is and all that he's done and all that he's promised? How do we know what that is? If you don't have this and don't know this, you don't know all that God is and all that he's done and all that he's promised. That's a huge arc from God to me. And it'll take forever to fully grasp it, won't it? How many of you know all that God is and all that he's done and all these promises? Anybody know it all? There's a young person there who does there. <laughs> the arc that returns from me to God, trying to work this thing, That ark returns from me to God represents my loving and joyful obedience in response to his love for me. Now that's pretty simple, isn't it? I go back to that ark from God to me. By the way, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all that God is, all that he's done, all that he's promised. When you think about it. I have people, you ever have people come up to you, pastor, and they say, oh, pastor, I just don't feel God's love. I don't feel that he loves me. Grandma loves me. Grandma hugs me and she makes good cookies. You know, we, it's tangible. We understand that. But in love, God set the whole cosmos in place, didn't he? I don't feel God loves me. Well, the sun came up this morning at just the right time. Burning at just the right temperature, at just the right speed, at just the right distance, at just the right angle. And if any of that were different, none of us would be here. And God revealed himself through his word and set apart for himself a people that he might have a possession for himself through which he might redeem the world. And in love, in the fullness of time, God sent his own son to a rebellious people to walk in our shoes and to live a perfect life of obedience. And in love, that son offered his life as a sacrifice on a cross for us. And in love, he defeated death and then by uh, rising from the dead. And in love, he ascended to the Father, and there he prays for us constantly. And in love, he pours out his own spirit that we might live in him and through him. And in love, he's going to come back again to put everything right. And in love, he's going to set us with him to reign forever. People, Grandma can't love you like that. All that he is, all that he's done, all that he's promised is worthy of your best study and knowledge and reflection. And then the ark from me to God. So it looks like this. I respond with all that he commands, all that I am, all that I possess, and all that I can do. In other words, this ark from God to me and then me back to God, I think Pastor Steve mentioned it, it's like rest and response. You see that? Another word for that would be trust and obey. 
for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. You can sing that. If you can't sing it, don't believe it, right? All that he commands, to obey all that he commands. It's a lot. So, so much, though, that that ark from God to me and me to God, I would say faith equals both those sides of the ark, trust and obedience. Now, there's a long-standing, for those of you who are into this kind of thing, there's a long-standing debate between uh, different branches of the Christian traditions of uh, reform movement or Arminian movement. Uh, some argue that, no, it's, we are saved by faith alone. Faith by, you know, we've saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest no one can boast. And that's in the Bible, I get that. And then there's other branches of Christianity that says, no, you have to do this, you have to do that in order to be saved. They're both by themselves are wrong. Because faith is resting in God, but it also requires obedience. And we don't obey God in order to get him to do stuff for us. We obey him joyfully because he's already blessed us. There's a big difference. Do I need to put a quarter in this to make it work? I'm not sure. We find this pattern all through Scripture. Now, the signature story of God's people is the Exodus. If you don't believe it, just look how much part of your Bible is given to that one story. And you know the story of the Exodus, how God delivered people of Israel out of slavery? 400 years of slavery. Think of that. Go back 400 years, 1622. Is my math right? To know nothing but 24-7, seven-day-a-week slavery. And God, through Moses, delivered 600,000 men, add the women and the kids and the dogs and the pets, and it's probably two to three million people, and set them free from slavery. And the story climaxes on Mount Sinai where God reveals to Moses and gives him the what? The Ten Commandments. And we know the commandments, right? Don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, don't kick your dog, you know, don't... Are you awake out there? We know the commandments. Even though we're a secular society, those commandments still form the basis of our law. They shape us in ways that we don't even realize. We know the commandments, but what we forget is the prelude to those commandments. Thou shalt not have other gods before me, right? That's, the, that's this side. But the prelude of the commandments is this. The Lord says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery, out of, out of Egypt. In other words, God says, I want you to obey the commandments, and if you do obey the commandments, then I'll set you free from slavery. No, he says, I want you to obey the commandments because I've already done it. Did you know the pagan cultures in Moses' day, they would worship fervently, probably put us to shame, but they would cut themselves. They would even put their children and sacrifice them in the fire in order to get the gods to do something, to bring rain or maybe bring uh, victory over an enemy king. And God said to Moses, you shall not do that. You're to be different from those people. When you worship, listen to this, I want you to wait till after the harvest has come. Then I want you to bring the first fruits of all your sweet corn. Amen? And I want you to have a party in my presence because I've already blessed you. Any preacher that says to you, if you give to God, then he'll bless you, is a liar. Television, it's full of them. Don't listen to them. We're generous with God. We give to God because He's already blessed us. Amen? There's nothing like it in the world. There's no religion like it in the world. There's no philosophy like it. There's no self-help strategy like it. There's no motivational speech 
like this in the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And all through the scripture we see this pattern. Here's the central summary verse of the Bible narrative. Ready for it? I'm going to slip you the answer. 1 John 4.19. Does anybody know the verse? You're going to know it before you go. We love... You already know it. Because he first loved us. We love this way because he first loved us. And we love this way because he first loved us. That summarizes the whole Bible story. There's, Bible, there's verses about God, but also, uh, well, let's just do this one more. Romans 12.1. Do you know this verse? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. We know that part of the verse, right? What we forget is the first part. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of what? God's mercy, all that he is, all that he's done, all that he's promised. How big of a view is that? In view of God's mercy, now offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. In other words, folks, you can't just go out here and just roll up your sleeves and say, by George, I'm going to offer my body as a living sacrifice. I'm going to try harder. You can't do it. The only way to do that is for you to rest in God's mercy. To be overwhelmed and quieted by his mercy. When was the last time that happened? I had a, a, a guy come to me once, Pastor Mark, how long should I have devotions? I could have said, well, two hours every day. No, I didn't say that. I, said, I asked him this. I said, how long does it take for you to be overwhelmed or even quieted by God's love for you? Five minutes? Fifteen minutes? An hour? How long does it take? And then don't get up off your knees until you've offered your day back to Him. This is a pattern for a devotional life. There's no other pattern for a devotional life than this. There's no other pattern for a public worship service than this. To come together and recite and rehearse and remember all that God is, all that He's done, all that He's promised, and then we all go out the door fully energized, full of joy to serve Him with whatever we have. Most worship songs today focus on the left side of that ark. I mean, the right side of the ark. I call that the indicative, if you're a grammarian, the indicative. All that God has done. And that's good. We need to remember that. But very few worship songs focus on the left, the left side of the ark. And we need both, don't we? This also translates to... Are you okay out there? This also translates to one anothering. We love God. We love each other, right? This way. So here's a verse. Love one another. Everybody believe that? So I'm going to preach a sermon on how loving you should be love, more loving to each other, and you go out there by George and just work harder at being more loving, right? No. Love each other. How? Jesus said, as I've loved you. You know when he said that? He said that after he'd washed the disciples' feet, the night before he knew he was going to pour out his lifeblood for the world. Here's another one. Accept one another. Right? I'll preach a sermon on accepting one another. You go out there and be more accepting. I don't care. You just grit your teeth and try to be more accepting. How many of you have heard a sermon like that? It's not the gospel. The gospel is accept one another. Why? Or how? Just as Christ has accepted you. Here's another one. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving one another. I preach a sermon on forgiveness. So you all go out there and be more forgiving. And you're going to try hard because you're good people. Well, you can't. Unless you realize and overwhelm that just as in Christ, God's forgiven you. This is the gospel. 
Edmund Clooney, who's a Reformed Presbyterian pastor, he said, so many sermons only focus on that left side. He called them synagogue sermons. Now, he's not trying to bash the Jewish religion, but what he's saying is they're sermons without gospel. They're sermons that just take a topic of, you know, living better, acting better, loving better, and you just go out and try harder. David slew his giant, so you get out there and slay your giants. That's not the gospel. That's a pep talk. Are you following me? There's nothing like it in the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is this so important? Well, we love because he first loved us. It's the only healthy and sustainable motive for mission. I tell pastors, don't ever try to get your people, engage them in mission until you first help them to rest in the love of God. Why is that so important? Well, here's why. Some people see being a Christian as only the left side of the ark. You recognize this? Do more, pray more, read the Bible more, give more, serve more, be more committed, be more missional. I've preached sermons like that. If you do that, you really only become like, uh, what's the story of the prodigal son, the older brother? You know the story? Two sons, father had a big farm. The younger son said, give me my inheritance, I'm going to go. And he went off and he wasted it. And then in his desperation, he came home and the father welcomed him with open arms and killed the fatted calf and threw a big party. You know the story? The whole time, the older brother is out in left field. Working, slaving away. Dutiful, obedient, but bitter. Complained to the father. He said, how come you kill the fatted calf for your little, my little brother? He's irresponsible. And the father said, we had to because your brother was dead and now he's alive. What's the problem? The older brother was obedient. He did more. He prayed more. He served more. He was diligent. But he could never rest in the father's love. Some people see the Christian life like this. In fact, I would, get, I would just guarantee if you went out in the street today and you talked to five people about coming to Christ and accepting Christ as Lord and Savior, most of them would filter that and, and think this is what you're asking them to do. You're only inviting them to be like the older brother. They don't even need the story to think that. On the other hand, more and more people today are like this. They see the Christian life is only this arc. And like I said, most worship songs only focus on this side. It's just, I think it's just uh, symptomatic of our culture right now. And it just says this, God loves you just as you are. There's nothing you can do. Whoa, I, that's quick. God loves you just as you are. There's nothing you do to make him love you more. Now you know it. Now you're saved. Let us pray. I can't tell you how many churches. I, I went on a sabbatical 10 years ago. I can't believe it. And Linda and I visited many different churches. And I couldn't believe how many this was the gospel. It sounds good. It's right. God does love you just as you are. There's nothing you do to make him love you more. But if that's the totality of it, people will hear you say that and they'll thank you and they'll walk away unchanged. Because obedience is just as important as trust. They both have to go together. Are you following me? Everybody take a deep breath. Hold it. Don't exhale. Okay? Hold as long as you can. Don't exhale. Now take another deep breath. Don't exhale. Well, what happens if you keep doing that? 
you'll pass out, which is the way a lot of Christians live. <laughs> Same as exhaling. You know, exhale and don't take any in and then exhale again. That's how many people, isn't it curious that Jesus, uh, the scriptures refer to the Holy Spirit as breath? Our bodies do it naturally every few seconds. We breathe in all that God is, all that he's done, all that he's promised. And then we breathe out obedience. Oh God, how can I love you more after all you've done for me? It's a cultivated life. Ignatius was, uh, started an order centuries ago, the Jesuits. And Ignatius developed uh, Ignatius Exercises, which was a devotional uh, standards for his uh, people. And they're still used today, powerful. Uh, the prayer of examine is an example of this. It's a prayer that you pray in the evening and reflection prayer on your day. There's many versions of the prayer of examine. The one I like is this. I, I came across this, and it asks this question at the end of the day. Where have you walked in love today? And then the other questions like it. Where have you failed to walk in love today? Let me just ask you, which side of the ark do you think it's re that question's referring to? Anybody want to venture a guess? The right or left? Yeah, right there. How many, how many think the left? How many think the right? How many think it's both? You folks get M&Ms, you're right. <laughs> to walk in love today is to walk and rest in all that he is, all that he's done, all he's promised. And to walk in love is to walk in obedience. Are you following me? People, there's nothing like it in the world. There's nothing like this gospel in all the history of the human story. I, uh, it was like around New Year's a couple years ago, and I went on a website of a well-known disciple-making organization. You'd know it if I mentioned it. And on that website, it gave a questionnaire to, to gauge how, how good you are or how much progress you've made as a disciple the previous year. 20 questions. So I looked down the questions. I found it very interesting. All the questions only focused on the left side of, uh, the, the left side of the ark. I'm sorry. Are you doing more? Are you praying more? Are you witnessing more? Are you giving more? And we have to do those things, right? But not one question asked, where or how are you getting quite enough, long enough to rest in the Father's love for you? I thought that was very interesting. I thought they meant well, but unwittingly they were creating a dysfunctional understanding of the gospel. And I tell pastors, I, I, I tell pastors, I say, if you try to engage your people in discipleship with only one side of the ark, which many do, I said, the chances are you'll do more damage than good. You need to engage them in the full scope of the gospel. Where have you walked in love today? I don't smoke, drink, cuss, chew. I don't cheat on my taxes. I love my wife. I, I floss every day. I'm a good person. But to be honest, and my wife would be the first to tell you, there are days when I don't walk in love. Some days I get it, but there's still many days that I don't. It's then that I realize I need a Savior. I need a Savior. 
I'll close with this. Henry Nouwen writes in a powerful article called From Solitude to Community to Ministry, and he describes how Jesus began his ministry. Do you know how he did? He showed up at the Jordan River at the age of 30, and he subjected himself to John the Baptist's ministry of baptism in the Jordan. Do you know the story? And the Gospel writer says that when he came out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove, And all who were there heard a voice that said what? You are my son, whom I love, whom I'm well pleased. Jesus didn't, Henry Nouwen says, Jesus didn't begin his public ministry until he heard that voice. And if you read in the Gospels, he got out of the water and he went to the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And there he heard all kinds of other voices, didn't he? Do this, do that, be, do something impressive. Jump off this temple, draw a following. Don't you want to have influence? Isn't that why you came? And Jesus said to Satan, I don't have to. Why? Because I'm already the beloved. And on Palm Sunday, Jesus walked through the crowd, shouting to crown him king, Hosanna, Hosanna, throwing their cloaks on the ground. And by Friday, that same crowd was calling for his crucifixion. And Nouwen says Jesus was able to walk through all of that because he knew he was the Father's beloved. And in John 17, there's an incredible prayer where Jesus says, if you've never read it before, read it. He says, Father, you love them just as much as you love me. Isn't that unbelievable? God loves you before you do anything, before you achieve anything. He loves you. But he doesn't leave you there. So I just close with this question. What's keeping you from resting in the Father's love for you? What's keeping you from responding in joyful obedience to all that He commands? It's a cultivated life. And it's an incredible life because there's nothing like it in the world. Amen.